0: RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. About a couple of months ago, we spoke to Dr. Oliver Hartwich, who is the Executive Director of the New Zealand Initiative. And we mainly talked about education back then, and it was a pretty grim conversation, actually. It was Well, it was great to talk with Oliver, but uh, the subject matter not too good. Anyway, I'd like to welcome Oliver Hartwich back to Reality Check Radio after a bit of a jaunt around the traps in the Northern Hemisphere Uh, Dr. Hartwich, welcome back. Thanks for for coming back on RCR. Uh, Great to be with you
1: again. Okay, so where have you been? Where have you been? (laughs) Where have I been? (laughs) Well, um, we first traveled to London. I had uh, almost a week in London, but that was meant as an acclimatization period because we had um, a trip to Ireland with our members, so a business delegation of 36 people, for five and a half days, traveling all around the Emerald Isle, trying to figure out what makes Ireland tick. Uh, and that was a pretty full-on program, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this later. And after that, I uh, actually had a week back home uh, with my parents, um, relaxing after two really full-on weeks in in London and in Ireland.
0: So we've you know, over the years heard about Ireland and, and sort of like it's a tiger economy and, and has done incredibly well as a member of the EU, the Republic of Ireland. And I know Dublin well, I've been there a few times and my family from one side is from there. The hospitality is fantastic. And I could see from your blog that you enjoyed quite a bit of hospitality, even if you didn't want it, it was there. So let's start. Unavoidable, yeah. unavoidable. Yeah. The amount of Guinness we had to drink was terrible well apparently it's good for you anyway isn't it and uh, it's like a food and yes. and 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 when in rome when in dublin you you do as they do of course certainly so um let, let's talk about the irish experience that, that you had and the, and the comparison i guess you can make in the end between what we're doing here and how we do things and and what they have done and are achieving et cetera. so you rocked up there first person you have anything to do with is the former speaker of the house who's now what is he, the High Commissioner or the Ambassador? What are they Ambassador. Yeah, Trevor Mallard. Yeah. And I noticed that you made a comment about his um, his sprinkler system skills or his hose skills. And I hope you were being uh, ironic or humorous when you said that uh, his failure at uh, – I'm just trying to find uh, the quote that, uh, you know, he sort of failed at getting people off the lawn in Parliament. That, that was an ironic, uh, humorous quip, wasn't it? You weren't seriously <laughs> –
1: well, I'm, I'm a humorous German guy, of course, so of course, so this would be firmly tongue-in-cheek. No, what actually happened was, um, we all rec- remember, of course, um, Trevor Mallard as Speaker and what he did with the sprinklers in Parliament. As he hosted us now as New Zealand's ambassador, um, Trevor actually himself told me the story that they had an unusually dry period in Dublin. And he's got a beautiful garden, hmm. but uh, because it was so dry, there were tinges of brown on the, on the lawn. And that was because, as Trevor told me, he couldn't actually figure out how to operate the sprinklers in the garden. <laughs> and I thought this was quite a neat irony, actually, to his previous job. So anyway, Trevor was a great host, I must say, um, yep. regardless of where you stand as uh, with Trevor as a politician and as a speaker. And I mean, we are probably not quite on the same side of the political spectrum in New Zealand, I must say, yep. as ambassador. He did a really good job actually hosting our group for the week. And he he did exactly what I would have expected from a New Zealand ambassador with such a group of business leaders visiting. So give him credit for that. Maybe he's found his, uh, his role.
0: Yeah, okay. And he's still struggling with the sprinkler systems, but who cares? Okay, so you were hosted by uh, Trevor Mallard on arrival. What was the aim of the trip to Ireland specifically? Because I mean, I've read the blog, and we'll go through some of the things you did. But what, what were you? What was the goal to come away with what? Well,
1: I should perhaps explain. This was our third such international trip with our members. We started that in 2017 when we took our membership to Switzerland for a week. At the time, what I wanted to demonstrate was how a country that is more devolved, more decentralized than New Zealand works. And there's no better country to study that than Switzerland, because Switzerland, country of about 9 million people, geographically the size of Canterbury, it has 2,000 councils and 26 cantons. So it is incredibly decentralized, and we want to study that. That was why I started these trips. And we hadn't even left Zurich uh, when members asked, okay, so can we do this again? Can we have another trip to learn? Because it's actually learning about how other countries are dealing with similar challenges. So we went to Denmark and Sweden in 2019. And uh, members, again, loved the experience because it's just inspirational seeing how other countries are doing things. Or when you go to a big factory like the Lego factory in Billund, which we uh, visited, that was just absolutely out of this world. So in 2019, we said, okay, we'll have to find the next small successful economy. And uh, that was Ireland for us. And we would have visited in 2021. But of course, nobody could travel in these COVID years. And so uh, that got delayed. And it finally happened. And this year, 2023, with a week in Ireland, uh, based in Dublin, but traveling around the country. So we visited Galway as well. We went up to Northern Ireland, Belfast. And the purpose of the trip is still the same from the previous ones. We want to go to successful countries, countries that perhaps do things a little bit better than us. And we want to be inspired. We want to learn. This is not a trade delegation, by the way. So the point is not for our members to come back with great business uh, contacts and collect loads of business cards. That's not what it is about. We want to really figure out how these countries are dealing with public policy challenges. And then, ideally, our members will come back to New Zealand as ambassadors for different policy solutions and tell people about what they've experienced. And Ireland, in that respect, is ideal, because if you look at Ireland, until about 1990, Mm -hmm. New Zealand and Ireland had about the same GDP per capita. We were on roughly the same level of economic development. In the meantime, in just over 30 years, Ireland has now catapulted itself to more than well almost twice the gdp per capita so they are way more successful than new zealand and we just want to figure out what have they done how could they propel the economic growth story because that was not how ireland traditionally functioned ireland was usually seen as a kind of poor house of europe there were times in ireland's history when ireland struggled to even feed itself remember the potato famine Ireland was a country that lost people and population. There are 35 million Americans that claim Irish heritage because there was a time when Ireland was a massive people exporter. Mm. But all of this has turned around. Ireland is growing. Ireland is rich. Ireland is successful. And we just wanted to figure out what have they done to achieve that. Okay. Have they done anything magical? No, they haven't (laughs) uh, because it doesn't take magic. Um, you can actually get there with the right kind of attitude and with the right kind of policies. And what we found there in a nutshell was a country that embraces business, that is open to business, that doesn't work against business, that doesn't try to regulate or control business, that just lets business work. And where government and business actually work together to solve problems together. Sounds revolutionary, right? <laughs> <laughs> By Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Just getting over that. (laughs) To sum it up, really, in one of the sayings um, we heard over the week from a senior executive from a large Irish company, he told us, Ireland doesn't have business-friendly policies. We have a business-friendly culture. Makes all the difference. Because you can copy some policies, you could introduce some Irish policies into New Zealand, and yet... It might not even work because what we're lacking is this Irish can-do mentality, the Irish pro-business culture, the culture that really embraces entrepreneurship. So that's what we really learn. Um, And on top of that, Mm. let's again, not magic. They have a passion for education. So... Ireland is a country that really cares for education, that really wants to bring education to every single child in this country. It's a conversation we had, of course, a couple of months ago when I was on your um, program yes. before. In Ireland, we found the opposite of the New Zealand approach, deep-rooted passion for education, a high appreciation for teachers. Teach, being a teacher in Ireland is an ambitious career.
0: Yeah, I think you made the point that they select from the top 25% of academic achievers. Mm -hmm. Is is that correct?
1: Top 25%. That's correct. In New Zealand, sometimes it seems like, you know, teacher is a career of last resort. If nothing else works for you, you can still become a teacher. In Ireland, it's the opposite. In Ireland, being a teacher is ambitious. It is a well-regarded profession and only the best and brightest become teachers. So what we found there was actually a country that cares cares for its schools actually measures school progress we had a meeting with ministry officials from their education department and it was eye-opening because it was unlike anything you would have with ministry officials from our education ministry
0: give us the contrast what was it what was it like compared to what you get here then i mean i I get the can do and the enthusiasm but you know that has to manifest with you know real approaches and and real achievement right
1: to me the biggest standout difference is actually the use of data. So they know that they have, like every country, some underprivileged communities, lower socioeconomic communities that probably need a little bit of extra attention when it comes to education and support. And they know that. So they have created a program that is available to schools in these areas. They don't have to join the program if they don't want to, but they would be stupid if they didn't because then they get support. And they are measuring the success that these schools are having in using support from the program. And they are trying to bring the same kind of education to every child in Ireland, no matter their background. And they are making such good progress that they're really on a path towards achieving that. Well, Amazing. It, it,
0: it kind of sounds like common sense again to me. I mean, obviously there's expertise and professionalism, knowledge required to bundle all that up. But why wouldn't you go that exactly. way? Um, Does it enlighten you any more as to why you think we're not on that track at all when there is such
1: obvious examples in the world of of how to do it? Well, because Ireland has common sense and we have ideology. So that's that's the difference. Actually, I can share one um, uh, nice little anecdote. We went to Intel um, in uh, Dublin, on the outskirts of Dublin, County Kildare, and it was just out of this world, this experience. It's a factory that cost 53 billion New Zealand dollars to build.
0: Crikey. <laughs> yes.
1: It's like a uh, third of our GNP or GDP or whatever. Yeah, not, not quite as much, but, but um, massive. Yeah, well, I like, get in that way, yeah. But, but, but just to give you um, a sense of proportion here, in a good year, New Zealand attracts about three, four billion US dollars in international investment. <laughs> this factory alone was... 53 billion New Zealand dollars um, out of this world. Anyway, um it, the Intel yeah. managers, they told us about the company stories and they told us that they have these factories in a few countries around the world, including Ireland, but also Israel, Costa Rica, the US, of course. Costa Rica. Costa Rica, yes. And they're building one in Germany as well. And one of our group members then asked, Well, what would it take for you to consider New Zealand as a destination? for your capital, as a place for your next factory? And the answer was, well, we need an educated workforce more than anything. Oh, either. dear. Uh. An educated workforce, especially with STEM skills or engineering, mathematics, sciences. Because they're making chips, right? They're making... Correct. Uh, so it's high-tech. It's really yeah, right. high-tech yep. chip production. Our member then asked, well, what would you make of a country that has just introduced a draft science curriculum Uh-oh. in which atoms and molecules and <laughs> physics and chemistry don't feature. The Intel executive gave us the perfect answer. He said, you know, my 16 or 17-year-old daughter, she would probably like to move to your country, but Intel certainly wouldn't.
0: <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That says, oh, that's a cringe, actually, yes. when, you, when you mention it like that. And that's bizarre, and plenty of people have uh, have waded in on their thoughts on on what you've just mentioned there. So Intel, 50, that, that must be one hell of a factory for that uh, sort of money, but I can imagine the technology that's packed in there. What else did you see uh, in Ireland that you could see being applied to New Zealand in terms of, well, you talk about the business-friendly approach, yes. embracing entrepreneurialism. I thought
1: that's what we did. Maybe we used to do that, but I don't think we are doing it on the same level as the Irish, or at least not anymore. I'll give you an example. Um, we took the bus uh, across the country to the West Coast, Galway. And it's about uh, two and a half hours from Dublin. And, you know, Galway is a tiny place. It's, it's not a Dublin, it's a place of maybe 80,000 people, so the size of Palmerston North, roughly. Right. Um, and frankly, when you're taking that bus trip, you wonder why anyone would move to Galway because the weather was getting progressively worse the closer we got to Galway. So we left Dublin at 22 degrees and sunshine and arrived in a, in the rain at 16 degrees. And people said it's actually quite a normal kind of state of affairs for Galway. It's a very wet, cold, kind of windy place. And yet they have created a, an absolutely stunning business hub in Galway. So we had a presentation from the Galway um, uh, Technology Centre, and from the um, IDA, that's the Inward um, d- Development Agency for Ireland, and they told us that I think for memory it was twelve out of the largest fifteen pharmaceutical companies in the world have a presence in Galway, and roughly the same proportion for IT companies. Then they told us a population of eighty thousand, but in a circle of eighty kilometres around Galway, you have about 60,000 tertiary students. So they've got an educated workforce and they're working quite closely with the it. Is that educated
0: workforce again?
1: It's again. the educated workforce again. And then we heard from the IDA and that's the agency trying to get companies into Ireland, what they're doing to make them feel welcome. And they're literally rolling out the red carpet so if you're coming as an investor, you're taken by the hand and there is someone from the IDA asking you, so what is it about Ireland that you need to understand? Can I help you, for example, navigate our tax laws? Can I help you maybe with visas for your people? Or can I help you in any other way? Or do you, You're still looking for a location for your place. Do you need school places for your kids? Um, so basically, they are playing the concierge to international investors. In New Zealand, by contrast, there is no one like that from the government. We have the Overseas Investment Office, but their role is the opposite. They are putting out the stop signs. They are basically making you demonstrate that you're of good character. Apparently, when Apple wanted to invest in New Zealand, Tim Cook, the Apple CEO, needed two years to demonstrate to New Zealand authorities that he was of good character. Imagine that. It is nuts. It is absolutely nuts what we're doing here. The Irish are doing the opposite. They are making it easy, welcoming, friendly, and they are successful with that. So we had this presentation and our members were just, they couldn't believe what they heard because anyone who's ever dealt with immigration in New Zealand, for example, would know that they're not. What's wrong with them
0: then? What's wrong with them? Because this is like normal everyday human behavior. You know, forget about trying to get the investment and in. You're nice to people anyway. You don't push them away. You welcome them.
1: What's going on? We are not welcoming at all. We are making it really hard for anyone to come here. We are treating them as intruders, as, as people who might take stuff away from New Zealand rather than adding to our gross national product. So seriously, um, I'm not quite sure what's wrong with New Zealand, but the Irish are doing it way better. So in New Zealand, for example, we have the Overseas Investment Act, and it starts off by saying in its first few lines that it is a privilege to invest in New Zealand, and um, the Irish actually see the other way around. They feel privileged when investors choose them. Well, that's what I would have thought. Yes, exactly. So they are treating you not as intruders, but as people you really want to have there, and you want to make you feel welcome. And... um, that oh, okay. basically goes throughout the whole Irish experience. So after we had the presentation from the Galway Technology Centre and the IDA, they took us across the road. We went to a factory, Thermo King. So that's an American company. They yeah. built these refrigeration units for trucks and trailers. And we could actually see a massive factory, one of the biggest factories, about 200 metres long, full of robots, um, where they're producing their units. Full of robots.
0: <laughs> it was, uh, Educated robots, right?
1: <laughs> well. Uh, there were not that many people actually working there, but highly sophisticated yeah. engineering applied. And also, what we found, they cooperated very closely with the universities around Galway and with the engineering departments, where students could actually come in and figure out how that kind of stuff works. Wonderful cooperation, actually. Really good to see. And uh, well, this, can
0: I just um, yeah. again um, contrast with New Zealand, and because you, you mentioned STEM before, and STEM subjects. Seem to have been played down quite a bit mm. in the New Zealand education sort of mm-hmm. space. Um, it's more about um, you know sociology and and things like that and 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 uh, art and history and yeah okay there's a role for that. But so there's a real active connection then between where you were and Thermo King and, and those examples with, with actually connecting with that field and what um, giving a window for students into the technology, but also, I guess, being a potential recruiter of those people Absolutely. at some point. So there's a path from doing STEM, from going uh, to a university, doing those courses, getting those qualifications,
1: and then getting into that profession, that field. Exactly right. Uh, they are very proud of their cooperation with the universities, and they both benefit. I mean, Thermoking King benefits from having Young, qualified people come in and try out new things. And these students, of course, benefit from having a connection with one of the world's leading companies in that field. So Mm. everybody benefits. It's a total win-win situation. uh,
0: Not so much here, right? Not not so so much
1: much here. Uh, I wonder whether the kind of factory we visited in Galway even exists anywhere in New Zealand. I mean, this kind of manufacturing on that kind of scale... I don't think we have in New Zealand. I mean, Thermo King would probably stretch it already, but certainly Intel with their factory in Dublin, there's nothing like that in New Zealand. We don't have yeah. it. But there could be, actually. they there could, could be. be. Of course there could be. I mean, and the, the thing about Galway, just to go back to the point, this is not a centrally located city. It's on the outskirts of Ireland. It's on the outskirts of Europe. It is not particularly large. It's only 80,000 people, and yet... They are home to some of the world's most innovative and biggest companies. They have made that work. And so if Galway can do that, maybe Palmerston North could as well.
0: It could have a business hub like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that was absolutely fascinating. The other thing I would say is actually this is politically wanted and and really across the political spectrum. So we talked to many people um, over that week people from politics, from different sides of politics, people from business, journalists, everybody was seeing from the same hymn sheet. That was another thing that really stood out for me. I actually thought in Ireland, if we did the same in reverse, say we had an Irish delegation visiting New Zealand, what would they hear? (laughs) I think they would hear many different stories from many different people. Whereas in Ireland, we heard the same story from people from completely different walks of life. They all said, We are an open economy. We like business. We like our low tax system. We had a former Labour Party minister um, speaking to us in Dublin, making the case for the 12.5% corporate tax rate, which by New Zealand standards would actually put into the right of act. But this was a left-wing politician in Ireland saying, no, we have a low uh, uh, low tax corporate tax system, and that works, and it is benefiting us, and we would be stupid to change it. So it's it's just astonishing actually to see how much unity there is across the spectrum on all. Is, the- is that
0: because there's an understanding of uh, of business in politics? Because that's the criticism I hear a lot here, uh, especially the current government. Very few of them, if any, have had any experience at all in any business, and their traditional upbringing, let's say, has kind of had a resentment and a suspicion of business, sort of. So that's baked in. So so you're saying these politicians that you met in Ireland actually understand business? Is that what you're saying?
1: Yes, uh, that is exactly wow. right. And by the way, in our current New Zealand parliament, there's only one single MP with an economics degree. And that's Brooke van Velden, the deputy act leader. Well, there you go. So right. we've got 120 MPs and only one has an economics degree. Wow. In Ireland, there is a much greater understanding of economics. Um, We had a meeting actually with the economics minister, Simon Coveney, really impressive politician, took an hour out of his diary to talk to us. uh, And we had a really good conversation with him. And some of the things he told us sounded so strange to our ears because we would never hear them in New Zealand. Like what, Oliver? Well, the one thing that really sticks out for me is he says he cannot travel around Ireland, even to the smallest communities, without being asked by locals... What can you do as a minister to bring foreign investors to our place? They all want foreign investment because they have seen what it can do. They have seen the great successes like Intel and like Thermo King and like all the other companies investing in Ireland. And everybody wants to have a piece of the action. So he says he's traveling around Ireland, even to small communities. And they're asking him as the minister what he can do to bring these international investors in.
0: That is I wonder if you get that here. And, that
1: wouldn't happen here. And, and a little and old of course, sleepy here. Yeah. yeah. And of course, he as the minister sees it as his job to make that happen. So it's not just that he's asked by his locals. He is actually totally friendly uh, and, and in favor of that idea, and he wants to make it happen. Again, when was the last time we heard a minister in New Zealand speaking like that? I can't uh, Are
0: you seeing, though, from what you saw in the data that obviously you'd be aware of, that the standard of living in Ireland is tracking that economic
1: success? Yes and no. Um, What I would say is, when we're talking about GDP per capita, that is a floor figure, meaning um, it is something that happens in a year. It is not a stock figure. It takes a while to build a country. So you can see that there is some wealth being generated in Ireland, but you can also see that this is still a relatively recent phenomenon. So a lot of the building substance in in Dublin is still relatively old. But I would say, give it another two decades and you would see a massive change. By the way, I would also say that not everything in Ireland is perfect, obviously. I mean, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect country. So... While they were doing a lot of things right on housing, for example, everybody agreed that they got this completely wrong and housing is so unaffordable in Ireland. You mean like um, here? <laughs> like here. Uh, that sounds very familiar to our group. So when yeah. they told us what's going wrong in the planning system and in housing, I mean, this was basically New Zealand again. So not everything in Ireland works. But the few things that they got going right, like education, like FDI, like business development, wow, there is a lot to learn for us.
0: Okay. You went to Northern Ireland as well, I believe. So yes. um, a different country, but same land mass. And uh, obviously um, a shipbuilding used to be, or maybe it still is big in Belfast. I think you went to Stormont Castle, had a look around there, went on the fast train. Tell us about that little jaunt.
1: Well, um, a trip to Ireland wouldn't be complete without uh, crossing the border and going to Northern Ireland. So we took that train and um, it was seamless. I mean, you might have thought now after Brexit, there would be some kind of passport controls. But no, we were told, actually, you can leave your passport in the hotel or need that. And we crossed the border on that train without even noticing it, really. So we got to Stormont, and that's the home of the Northern Ireland Assembly. That's an, a parliament for Northern Ireland that has been dysfunctional now for a couple of years because they can't find an agreement between the major parties after Brexit and that's a square that you uh, a circle that you can't square or the other way around because the problem is really that after Brexit uh, Britain wants to do its own trade policy whereas Ireland of course the Republic is in the European Union and Northern Ireland is stuck somewhere in between the right. idea is now that they will somehow have a special place where they can trade with both the UK and the EU via Ireland but all of this is highly contentious and as long as the parties can't find agreement on that because they see it of course, if you're a unionist in Northern Ireland, as a precursor to potentially some kind of Irish unification. So these issues are really, really complicated. So we had um, a session in the Northern Ireland Assembly with um, the Speaker of the House, whom I didn't understand, I must say, because um, that was a kind of accent, and uh, I don't know whether it was also the fact that he didn't have his microphone switched on, but I really struggled to understand the word he was saying. Okay. Um, And um, afterwards, we had four members of the Northern Ireland Assembly from different parties. So we had um, one representative Sinn Féin, that's the Catholic party. Yep. We had someone from the Alliance that seems to be a party that tries to find a way between um, the Unionists and the Catholics. And then we had um, the Democratic Unionist Party and the Ulster Unionists, so people who really want to remain within the UK framework. And the funny thing, actually, about that discussion was the body language between these four politicians from totally different ends of the political spectrum they seem very chummy oh, they, on yeah. a personal level they got on our, our group was totally surprised and we were trying to figure out was that genuine or was it just an act they put on for us because they didn't want to look to divide it in front of a group of visitors from from new zealand yeah. but in any case um it was remarkable because he, he well We arrived at Stormont thinking, well, this parliament is dysfunctional. Nobody knows what what, uh, the future for Northern Ireland will be after Brexit. And we expected um, maybe a hostile kind of atmosphere between the four MPs. No, quite the opposite. They got on. And uh, the thing that blew me away was when one of the unionists actually said, Actually, in our history, we got it wrong. We thought we had democracy. But you know what? When you're in the 70% majority in the country, you win in every election. And of course, the other guys never had a chance to probably be properly hurt. And I realized that was a mistake. Wow! Wow. Wow. Enlightened view. Enlightened. Uh, it's, It's not what I expected. So that was encouraging if you think it was genuine. And that's the bit I'm not quite sure. You,
0: you about. sound like you're, you're still a bit undecided about that.
1: I, I, I couldn't tell. I mean, it was a day yeah. in, in Belfast, and I'm not a great Northern Ireland expert. I was just taken by what I heard, and I hope that um, that spirit between the four was genuine. I mean, when you then travel through Belfast, of course, you go past the murals, and yeah, the history of the troubles is visible and practically visible on every corner. So you, you really wonder... And then, of course, there's the other problem, the economic development problem for Northern Ireland. So there is a massive differential between wages in the Republic and wages in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland for a long time had, of course, been dependent on the UK UK for subsidies. So there was a time, and I think we're still not that far away from it, when the British government accounted for about 70% of Northern Ireland's GDP, because um, they were totally dependent on... Direct,
0: direct. Yes, um, Direct.
1: And, um, yeah, you can feel that in parts. We went to Harland & Wolf, that's um big shipbuilding company, and uh, it's actually the uh, shipbuilder behind the Titanic. Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. So yeah. we went to that historic shipyard, and they um, had a very slick presentation telling us their plans for the future. Apparently, they've got a, more than a billion pounds of investment lined up or, or new shipbuilding contracts. And yet, when you walked around the shipyard, uh, it looked a bit It was not really booming, I would say.
0: Were they making any ships? Were they building any ships? Well, I
1: I saw some uh, welding works on a barge, but even that looked a little bit improvised to my untrained (laughs) eye. Um, Nevertheless, we went over from there to the Titanic Museum, Titanic Experience, and that blew me away. Um, If you haven't seen it, Google it, Titanic Experience Belfast. The building itself is beautiful. It is an architectural masterpiece. And the exhibition, I mean, where you would expect a kind of a museum dedicated to the Titanic with a few kind of artifacts and so on. uh, This was a multimedia experience. Um, It was parts more like a theme park, really. It was beautifully presented, the whole story of the Titanic. And they are still proud of Titanic in Belfast because, as they told us, when she left Belfast, she was all right.
0: Yeah. (laughs) yeah, she she didn't have a hole um, 300 no. foot slice down the side under the waterline. and uh, though though it might have set sail with a fire in one of the coal bunkers, that's uh, something that's come yeah. to light recently. By the way, yeah.
1: from Titanic we actually then walked across the road again. We ended up on SS nomadic and uh, that was a tender boat to Titanic right. The, the only remaining ship actually from that era, um, with a very colourful history herself. Oh, so you went to the actual vessel. The actual, yeah, yeah. We okay. had we had yeah. an evening reception with Invest Northern Ireland. So that's the inward investment agency for Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, pretty much a little sister of the IDA in the Republic, hmm. and they were telling us about how they try to get international investors to Northern Ireland. And again, they did this in such a slick way that made us feel a little bit inadequate as New Zealanders because oh, we don't have gosh. that here. And they yeah. told us about their corporate success stories in Northern Ireland and how they attract international investment. And again, we don't do that in New Zealand. So they even do it in Northern Ireland with all their troubled history yes, with all their current challenges. But they are really desperately trying to get international companies in and they are successful at doing that.
0: Boy, it sounds like we've really lost the plot, actually, when it comes to all of this. I don't know if we ever had it.
1: Well, yes, it it sounds like that. And I can tell you from talking to our members, um, they all see it in the same way. So at the end of the week, I mean, we we started the week with Trevor Mallard. Yeah. And uh, in his opening address, when we met him at the New Zealand Embassy's residence, he said, I want to give you some homework for the week. You explore this country. And at the end of it, when we meet again for our final dinner, you tell me what you learned. And so... We did this homework. We traveled around the country. We learned a lot. And when we met Trevor again at our final reception at Christchurch Cathedral in the crypt of Christchurch Cathedral, beautiful venue, by the way, Yeah, we reported back to Trevor what we found. We found a country that embraces business, that is open to trade, open to investment, where business is not seen as the enemy, but where government and business actually work together, where education is highly valued and not the kind of ideological education that we have in New Zealand, but, you know, conventional kind of mathematics, physics, science, chemistry, the the things that we used to do. Actual knowledge. knowledge. Actual knowledge, not the stuff that we do these days, but traditional knowledge where teachers are valued, respected, where this is an ambitious kind of profession. We found all of this in Ireland, and it was a country that made us feel quite small. And... We left Ireland in some ways angry with ourselves that we had let, have let New Zealand become the place it is, and also we left realizing that over the last few years, where we couldn't travel, where we couldn't leave New Zealand easily, we probably lost sight of how far the rest of the world has progressed, and how far they have left us behind. Oh dear! And we need to catch up. We need to have more of that spirit. We need to have more of the Irish outspokenness. And we just need to get on to it now and get cracking and start reforming this country. Um, did Trevor get
0: it? Did he already know this or did you educate him? Because, I mean, he was involved with the most recent government for a long time. Could have made a difference
1: probably somewhere in there. Well, I can't speak for Trevor. My impression, though, is that on many of these issues, he sees it very similarly. Okay.
0: All right. So, what do you do with uh, with this in mind now? And you pointed out it's not the first trip, but uh, you know the most recent one. You had your members with you. Is there a sort of like a determination, or, or is there a strategy going to come out of this? As to, I mean, what can you do with this information? How how can you t- take us? How can we go to the next level? It sounds like we're going to have to dump a lot of baggage.
1: We do. The, the one thing you can do is actually we are trying with our trips to influence the influencers. So we had a highly influential group of New Zealand business leaders with us, people who regularly talk to politicians and uh, regularly talk to other business leaders. I can tell you they have all come back to New Zealand telling everybody about the trip because they were so enthusiastic about the things they learned. We are talking and I'm personally talking a lot to politicians um, and practically every politician I talk to these days, I, I fill them in on what we learned. And I say actually Does it look want... like
0: they're listening? Though, does it look? Yeah, are they, they taking they, it in? Are they asking the right questions? Are they?
1: Yes, yes, yes. They are. Um, and um, I mean, I'm not giving away too much. I can tell you that uh, Christopher Luxon, for example, actually visited Ireland himself last year, and um, he also met with the IDA, so the Inbot Investment Agency, and was totally impressed with their work. I mean, as anyone would be because okay. they're doing such a fantastic job. So when I um, returned from. Dublin I had a very quick chat actually with Luxon and filled him in and I said well everything that you told me about the IDA we found confirmed and we had company visits that were just out of this world and if we want to have something like that in New Zealand we probably need to copy their model we need not an overseas investment office that puts up a lot of stop signs we need an agency that actually helps investors locate in New Zealand and I think Luxon sees it the same way so I um, we are having these conversations with politicians and with officials, and um, who knows? Um, after a potential change of government, we might see some action in this area.
0: Potential sounds like it's a more well. I mean, it is a potential change, but it sounds like it, that's kind of what needs to. But, to but happen. you know what?
1: Sometimes you just need to see it. We've been publishing reports on on FDI, foreign direct investment, for more than a decade. Yeah. And we can give you uh, statistics until the cows come home on how we are missing the boat on FDI and how other countries are doing better than us. And we've got rankings of countries where we can show you that we're not doing a good enough job. We've published all of this many times. We've pr- I don't know how many op-eds I have written, columns yeah. on FDI. The difference is actually seeing it. So when you take a delegation of business leaders to Ireland and you actually take them to a factory and you show them what works there, that is an entirely different game. Maybe we should do this more often. Maybe we should take our politicians or- Maybe we should do it all the time, actually. Yes, we should travel. We shouldn't actually criticize our politicians for traveling. I mean, sometimes they get criticized for, oh, you're on a junket. No, they have to see it. It's not enough to just read a report. Go and visit these factories. Go and visit some schools maybe in Ireland to figure out what they're doing. Actually see it and have this personal direct experience because I guarantee you, you will come back to New Zealand and you will want to change the way we're doing things here.
0: Great to catch up with you again. Really fascinating to hear about that trip and, and what you picked up and, and the contrast between that experience and what we have here so thank you for coming on and, and telling us about that thank you
1: very much Great to i'd to love to come
0: on one of those trips one day myself actually <laughs> just letting you know do it <laughs> yeah i guess i'll have to sign up become a member but no that was really interesting so dr oliver hardwidge the executive director of new zealand initiative thanks for being on rcr once again thank you very much rcr with paul brennan reality check radio